You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 10th of September to the 14th of September. Uh, this week for Trauma Tuesday, I told you guys about uh, Ralph yep. eating a creature and then vomiting it up the next day. Oh, spoiler alert. Well, there's bits in between. <laughs> uh we chatted to uh, Mia Timpano uh, about her f- Melbourne Fringe show, Speaking of Which, The Science of Conversation, and also uh, my phone died and I had it caused some many troubles whilst I was at a, various different airports. Yes, and we talked about eating brains and guts and stuff. Jeez, I feel like that was the theme for the week. <laughs> yes, but this, t- this time it was Michael Harden. He was talking about fancy food trends involving offal and we talked to ben lawrence he's the director behind new documentary ghost hunter it took seven years to make very interesting you're listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from three triple r you're listening to triple r it is nearly six fifteen on tuesday which means it is time for trauma tuesday so we're just going to have a chat about things that... Jeff, you looking at me like you've never done this before. <laughs> no, <laughs> like I was just thinking that trauma, trauma Tuesday is the one that comes most naturally. We yeah. can do it every day. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? All right, can I start? Because I have some, yeah. so much trauma. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I was in. on a help desk yesterday mm-hmm. trying to get my internet fixed for literally two hours. Wow. Oh. It was just oh. the worst. Okay, yep, I'm, I'm feeling your pain. So yep. I've got a my, my services with a big mm-hmm. provider. I won't say who, who who they are. And I started having like kind of intermittent, intermittent connections. So you go from one room and your phone would drop out, right? Mm-hmm. When that's more, happening, don't you just go, I'm not going to address this because I hope it's going to fix itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for six months. Yeah, so yeah. Strangely, it hasn't worked. And, you know, you think, oh, it could be the phone. It could be, you know, and you just know it's going to be a world of pain. Yeah, and totally you don't want to deal Your with it. Your voice sounds different today. Really? Yeah, can you hear that? Mm, keep talking. Keep talking. Sorry, carry on. Oh, now yeah. I'm too self-conscious to oh, talk. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not no, going to talk no, for the rest sorry, of the day. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, in a lovely way. In a nice way, not mm. a bad way. It just sounds different. Sure. So, but these, but like they don't advertise their phone number anymore because they want you to do it all online, right? Yeah, but uh, how do you do it online when it's the well, internet that's the, the problem? Thing. That's mm-hmm. the thing. So, I like, I eventually found a phone number. I tried to call and there's like 45-minute wait, right? So I think, okay, I'll go on this stupid online chat thing mm-hmm. and <sighs> you're inputting bloody data and you're doing all of this stuff and please wait, we'll be with you you know, mm-hmm. and it's always like Bill and Jane are going to be with you. Yeah, hi, I'm Jane. Can I help you? <laughs> yeah, sure. They're not real. Though, <laughs> no, yeah. they're not real at all. They you go got through me. All I thought that they were real. You go through all this palaver and you tell them, they say, what seems to be the problem? You give them this long essay about what the problem yeah. is. Mm. And they say, actually, I'm in the sales department. I can't help you with that at all. Oh. And then oh, they like, say, so if I understand this right, you need help with. Connection and you're like no. So they tried to transfer me to the tech department and just lost the connection. Oh. Then when I kind of finally got back to the tech department, they did exactly that. They said, "Oh, we need to do some test or or whatever on your mm-hmm. modem," and they did that. And the first thing it did was took the connection down, which meant I lost all of the chat. Oh, so I finally got through to this person, explained oh it all to them, and then they just disappeared, and I couldn't get. There's no way to get back to them, right? Oh. So I thought, okay, well, this is demented. Like, what is like you said? What's the point of an online chat when you're trying to fix your your Internet, modem. Yeah. So um, then I spent hours trying to get like onto um, the phone and the phone kept dropping out as well. So the same thing, you'd go through all this palaver and type everything and you'd get oh. onto the... 
And then eventually I got to someone and they just said, oh, yeah, it's probably your modem. Um, so oh, you'll, you'll have to buy a new one. That'll, oh, my God. That'll be $80. If only, yeah. So T- To be honest, I had a similar thing recently. N- internet's no good. And I would, oh, man, I make an effort to, because the internet wasn't working at all, so I needed to find a number, found the number. And it's that thing where you have to go through and you press this button to get to here yeah, yeah, yeah. and then that button and that button and that button and then you eventually get through to someone. And the first thing I say to them is, hey, listen, What's the direct number? Because I'm or now I'm really angry, and it's not your fault. And then I've come through to you, and it's I've, it's a big effort to come through to you. This is dumb. This is really dumb. I'm only saying this not directly at you, but hopefully someone's listening to this conversation and then go, oh, that's a that's probably a good idea, <laughs> and you can get onto it. But I spoke to he, but this one person I spoke to was a man, and he was like, oh yeah, it's, you just reset your modem, just turn it off and turn it on again. There's nothing wrong here. I can't see anything wrong here. Everything's fine. I'm like, well, it's not. And then I next day. Same thing, have to call someone else. It's a man again. Oh, everything's fine from this end. There's nothing wrong. And then same thing happened the next day. I call. This time I get a woman. And you know what? She discovers that I'm probably telling the truth and then she sends a tech out and, yes, there is a problem. Yes. Well, look, I'm, I can report that my, me. my provider mm. equal opportunity incompetent. Both the men and women were equally hopeless. So anyway, so I'm going to have to pay for a new modem. I don't even know whether it's going to fix it. This is just complain. This is just complain hour, isn't it? Sometimes it swings from trauma (laughs) to just like vent our complaints about life. Yeah, but there are so many people on board with... Internet is the... Internet, Mm. nothing makes me as panicked as those internet conversations. I get so angry. yeah, internet or f- yeah. yeah. internet or phone, just any sort of or big yeah. service provider. Yeah. I feel, never, yeah, it takes I a long feel time. like if there was one of them that said, "Look, we're just going to put the money into having a proper help desk that you get through to straight away," I feel like people would sign up for it in droves. But they would never ever admit to doing anything wrong. Well, I just think a part of the problem is you just can't get on to anyone, but, and when you do, but that's a, but my problem is is. Is you go, hey, this is not working, and they and they never admit that they've done anything wrong. Like even if you get a bill wrong or something, or they've you know something goes wrong with a bill, it's never their fault. It's always yeah. oh, and I do this get they happened. must they must get heaps of calls from enough you know it's mm. yeah anyway. Yeah. I mean to be fair, Nuffies. I've probably done something yeah. to it. <laughs> So probably spilled no, some yeah. wine on nah. it or something. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, <laughs> stop drinking wine on your modem. <laughs> Should I talk about something that happened last week that you might be aware of anyway? Mm-hmm. Okay, so last week when I was walking Ralph, he has this habit of grabbing things in his mouth and then eating them before I can see what he's eaten. Oh. He kind of has got quite smart at it because he knows that I watch him and so he'll walk over to a spot and stare up in the air like he's not doing anything. <laughs> then he just launches down at the ground really fast and, <laughs> like pancetta hands. <laughs> And he, last week, he grabbed something in his mouth, but I could see what it was. It was the spine, had a spine, and he had a spine hanging out of his mouth. Uh, I know, okay? Was it a rat? I don't know. I think it was a possum. It was a big spine, and it was horrifying. And then we had this standoff. That is disgusting. I know, okay? It's too much for me to deal with. We were opposite a building site as well, and there was probably about 10 builders having some kind of smoker or break out the front of the building site watching me wrestle with Ralph to get this spine out of his mouth. It was ridiculous. So there Sorry, was just when you say spine, is it... A long had, spine yeah, yeah. of a creature. I don't need to see the first bit of it, so I don't know what it was. Oh, so you, was there any fur or... No, just like a skeleton. 
Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know whether that's better or worse. Yeah. So a skeleton mm. spine. Anyway. <laughs> So we, rest, we had to wrestle in the street and I had to go, you know, and you don't want to look like a crazy person. So I'm trying to tell Ralph off to get him to drop it. But Give I also, me that spine, Ralph. Yes, <laughs> and I don't know how to get it. So then we're wrestling. I'm wrestling with his spine. And every time I'd wrestle, he'd go Hop, and get a next, another bit oh. in. Then he'd go Hop. another vertebrae. And he eventually just sucked the whole thing in and crunched it really fast and swallowed. And I, I was like, oh. Actually, give <laughs> well, up. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what you've got in you. I don't know where that's going. But then I came home the next day, and as I walk in the door, he's throwing up all over the rug, like bile, oh. gross. Oh, so it's just a really gross. Oh, it's too really gross, is isn't trying. it? I should have given some more. But it's that you know, but like yellow, bright yeah, yellow. Yeah. And I just came in. It's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know. It was really upsetting and I and he has never vomited before and so I was freaking out. And I know that it's normal for dogs to do that, but because he'd eaten the spine the day before, I was a little bit paranoid and I started Googling. Our, spine, and, our spine's poisonous. Our spine's poisonous, <laughs> apparently. I can get stuck. And so I was just freaking out and he was very lethargic afterwards. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, you Google all those symptoms and it says, you know, can be an intestinal blockage. It could also just be really normal because dogs do that all the time. Yeah. But in my head, it was intestinal blockage. Um, so and I had to clean it up. I didn't even care. Like usually that would really upset me cleaning it up because I was so worried about him. I was just oh. cleaning it up really fast. Like a nurturing instinct has kicked in maybe. Sure. And <laughs> and then I took him for a walk. You know, then I called Kath because the only person what? I could think. Didn't you know this? No. Did I tell you? No. Oh. I was like, oh, I never oh, spoke like... to Jez about me calling Kath in a panic. <laughs> and then I and then so, so I took him for a walk and I thought I'll get him to go to the, you know, if he goes to the toilet or something, there'll be that'll be a good sign that he's like intestines. So then I rang Kath. <laughs> And then Kath just went through a few things with me and we talked about whether it was normal to vomit and if you'd gone to the toilet and the things I should look out for and what I should be worried about. She didn't tell me this Did either. She? No. <laughs> anyway, he ended up going to the toilet. It was all fine. And then she texted me and said, I think he'll be fine. And uh, he's been happy ever since. And the rug is stained bright yellow. Uh, my oh, jute, mate, I can my nice you... jute rug, which I bought for a bargain. It's now stained with spine some... vomit. Yeah, spine vomit. Tips <laughs> on um, things to get to. Can remo- you? Yeah, yeah. Bile vomit. No, just things, you, the stain remover, things oh. you can buy that you should have on hand now okay. that you have a dog. I got some kind of carpet remover thing, but it just it just made it worse. Mm. It kind of spread the stain. Anyway. So what's the lesson from this episode? Well, I'm watching Ralph like a hawk when we walk now, and also I think that, Dogs are pretty sturdy. Yeah, that's I think, what like that's what Kath said. She said he's a big dog. He'll have a big sturdy gut. Mm, I think yeah, you should stress less about his um, walking snacks. Yeah, yeah, he'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, he'll be right. Spine Harry, now and Harry and Lloyd found a um, that maggoty ham oh, once. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a metal band, maggoty ham. <laughs> someone, someone, there was like a Christmas ham that someone had. Oh God! Turfed under a bush and <laughs> oh, anyway, Lord sorry, and Harry I feel like a, we should have given a warning for this. Had a segment. wonderful, oh. wonderful Christmas a couple of years ago. Gross. Uh, just quickly on um, my on dogs as well. Yeah. It's not so. It's not really my trauma. I was okay with it, but yesterday. Um, I quite often take um, the dogs down to Victoria Park yep. um, to take, go for a walk. But if there's any kind of training and stuff on, obviously you can't use the oval. Yes. Uh, but get down there yesterday and there was a bunch of, like, there was a bunch of clinics happening, like for primary school kids. So 
it was just very fun to watch because you come up over the hill and you'd see the dogs coming, you know, there's one with the frisbee and gets, well, here we go, gets right up to the gate and it's like, oh, oh, oh no, you can't. So it was just so had sad. It was, it was just a whole bunch of sad dogs standing on the outside <laughs> just wanting to go Staring out onto in. the oval. Oh, so. Maybe they'll find some spines or something. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. It's Melbourne Fringe Time. One of the shows you can catch as part of that festival is called A Speaking of Which, The Science of Conversation. It's on the 16th, the 20th and the 23rd, 27th of September in Collingwood. To tell us more, we're joined by its writer and performer, the editor of Triple R's Trip Magazine, Mia Timpano. Good morning, Jeff. How Good are you? Good morning. <laughs> Very well, thank you. And Geraldine and Sarah. Good morning. Sorry to spill coffee on my face. It's so nice to have you here. Not just in the Triple R office, but in the Triple R studio, talking to us mm. about your show, an interactive comedy lecture on yeah. what makes conversations work. How did you get interested in the science of conversation? Well, uh, uh, towards the end of last year, I discovered this book uh, called How We Talk by a linguist in Sydney called Nick Enfield. Oh. So, uh, well, originally I heard Nick talking on um, ABC Radio. And the subject of the conversation was the use of the words um and ah in conversation. And it was fascinating, but he was talking in this very monotone voice and it was really hard to actually uh, follow what he was saying. (laughs) So I, I just made a mental note, I must look this book up. So I located the book, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. And it's so fascinating to me uh, how these words operate and how they function as traffic signals in our conversation. Uh, And I was reading it on the train and I got so excited. I really wanted to jump up to the whole carriage and and say, (laughs) you all need to know. What is going on in our conversations every day? Because we're all we're all talking according to these rules. So, so what what are some of the rules? Well, for example, um, the the use of the words um and are ah are working as traffic signals. So we're taught that the words um and are ah are bad. Yes. Don't say them. But in fact, say for example, you ask me a question, Jeff. Which I probably will. Which you definitely will. <laughs> Uh, if I don't respond within approximately 200 milliseconds, that pause will become difficult for us. <laughs> we, we've oh. had that guest in. <laughs> I think like every for, pause is difficult for Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> like it, and it's a lot less than... <laughs> there it is. There Already it is, uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Back to conversations. So this is... So in order to... I'm morally obliged... There's a moral architecture underpinning conversation. There's a bit of a moral contract going on once we've started talking to each other that if you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. Uh, And so in order to indicate to you that I am following this moral code, but let's say I don't have an answer for you within 200 milliseconds, I'm going to say, um, just to indicate to you that I'm aware it's my turn, I'm fulfilling my moral obligations to answer your question, I'm going to make a noise and that's what that noise is indicating. So it's buying me an extra maybe second in order to think about how I'm going to respond to you. Because to me, I think that's an, it's an amazing feat of mental gymnastics that we're doing all the time in order to immediately respond 
to the other speaker to have something to say. Does it function like that when you're doing a speech or you have to get up? Does it have, does um always have that function? Potentially. It depends on if if you know what's being said. In conversation, it's harder because the topic is constantly changing. So you've just changed the topic and you've introduced a new set of concepts. And those concepts in your, what I refer to as input sentence, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, those new concepts are the concepts that I can build upon for my response. And the concept that I build upon, so what, what was it you said? Does that make it? Does that apply in the context of um, giving a speech? Yeah, something along these lines. So, the new concepts. Oh, sorry. The, yeah, the new uh, the new topic that we build the concepts from. Um, speech making. Uh, the the use of um and ah. Um, let's say those are our new concepts. I can pick one of those concepts to respond to, and by doing so, I legislate out the other concept. Oh, so we can so full on. We can, <laughs> we can we can circle back to your other concept, yeah. for example. You know, so say for example, like let's say we're chatting in the kitchen. You might say something and I res- uh, the conversation veers off in one direction, but there was another direction that I had an anecdote for and I wanted to tell you that I can circle back to an old topic. Yeah. But in order to do that, I would have to acknowledge that somehow. I would have to say... I digress. I, I, <laughs> I, have, to, I have to acknowledge it because we're yeah. constantly moving along in this. It's akin to walking with someone. This is where that moral obligation comes in. So oh. let's say you and I decided to go for a walk uh, across the road to Milkwood. Um, if I just ran off ahead of you... <laughs> be very sad. <laughs> you'd be really... You'd be like, what, you'd be like, what, is, like, what have I done? Take me back to year seven. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the same with talking. I can't just run off and just talk about whatever I want to talk about. Yeah. I'm morally obliged to be involved, pay attention, be interested, and above all, be relevant. But be relevant to the concept that we're kind of mutually, it's, it's a mutually agreed upon objective. Oh. And so that's constantly being updated and revised based on what we're saying. So if, you know, if there's someone who's got a reputation as being, you know, a good conversationalist, someone who's interesting to talk to, what extent then is that usually because they have interesting things to say or to what extent is that because they understand these rules that you're talking about and, and apply them in interesting ways? Or is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. I think if you can stay relevant, I think that's how you uh, you really master conversation. Uh, yeah, if 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 I can be if I can be constantly updating my thoughts according to the new concept that we're working with and move that forward in a way to which you can then relate, we'll both have the experience of having. A, a fulfilling conversation. So what happens in the show? So the show is effectively a conversation support group. Amazing. And we, oh. all, we all gather together and uh, I talk. It, it's effectively, it's a safe space for me to talk about my need to talk about talking. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we are, we're all given a name badge and biscuits and a cup of tea. Oh, uh, hello, sold. <laughs> by the way, you don't have to talk. So even though it's a support group, you don't have to talk. It's good to talk, but listening is also part of talking. So you can just listen. It's safe. You can nominate to be a chatty Kathy or a mute mini. 
Oh, I love Jodie Cathy and Mute Mini. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you think from the the research you've done about this, is it possible to learn to become a better conversationalist? Can you go from being one of those person people who can never think what to say to being, you know, sparkling repartee? I really think you can. Absolutely. Like, say for example, there are there are nineteen. Well, tech. Okay. There's, I say there's 19 topic-shifting devices. Technically, there's 20, but there's one I don't understand, so I don't like to talk <laughs> about that one. Uh, but if you know what these are, and, for example, they're super topic, metatopic, and the, all these work in different ways, and we talk about them in the, in the, in the meeting, um, <laughs> if you understand how these work, then you can know the, the means by which you can move the topic forward. So if you're someone who kind of just struggles or... Uh, with that and you understand actually the mechanics of this, uh, then you can kind of get a bit of practice in from a scientific perspective uh, and then apply them to uh, to your everyday conversations. But that said, you don't really need to learn any of it because everything that we do talk about in the meeting is stuff you intrinsically know. Right. These are rules that we're constantly obeying whether we're aware of them or not, which is what I find really quite wondrous. This, this is, uh, this is uh, universal infrastructure that underpins social interactions in all languages, all human languages, uh, and I just think that's, that's marvellous. So conversation, science or an art? <laughs> oh. I would say science, yeah. Oh. I think art is, I don't, I don't feel science that. Science done in an artful way. That's it. That's oh. exactly what it is. Thank All you. right, so the show, you've got the four events, 16th, 20th, 23rd and 27th September at... Uh, at Kazra Top Sturdy Secrets on Smith Street. And so if it's a conversation book, presumably it's fairly small. It is. It's pretty small. So we've, we've sold out um, the, the opening night, but those dates that you mentioned are still available, but it's, it's limited, very limited. Uh, so if people want to go, they best jump on the website pretty damn quick smart. Melbournefringe.com.au, search for Speaking of Which, The Science of Conversation. Speaking of Which, The Science of Conversation, and we've been talking to the person behind it, Mia Timpano. Thank you so much for coming. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Food interlude here on Breakfasters on Triple R. Larissa Dubesky is overseas. We're very kindly joined by food critic Michael Harden. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Very keen to be talking to you about offal. Yeah, because I thought, <laughs> what what better food topic to talk about at 7 o'clock in the morning is guts. So, uh, but um, it's, I've been noticing sort of eating around as I do that there sort of seems to be more and more offal on menus around Melbourne. And I have to say a couple of the best dishes I've eaten this year have been offal. I had a, I went to an Italian dinner the other night with a chef from Piedmonte and he was doing a, a dish called Finanzera. Sorry, Italians. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was basically sort of livers and hearts and um, uh, I think kidneys were in there as well and it was this beautiful sort of the, the texture was gorgeous. It was all in a tomato sauce and sort of beautifully cooked and delicious. So it's sort of like I thought, you know, one of the most beautiful dishes but also offal is a, is a product that is probably that horrifies more people than, uh, yes. than any other. You what know, defines offal? Offal is um, it's basically sort of everything that's not muscle meat. So okay. you sort of like there's three. There's actually three categories 
I did a little research on this oh, and it's sort of like a fan- fascinating. Um, there, so there's the organs. So you've got, you know, the heart, liver, brain, spleen, all of those sort of things. And then you've got the sweetbreads, which are the glands, so, uh, which is one of my favourites. So that's sort of thyroid glands, pancreas oh. glands and stuff, tiny little things that are... And I know it's, it sounds revolting, but, <laughs> my God, they're delicious. And then you have the extremities, which is the feet and the ears and the tails and the wings. And so, so even something like chicken skin is considered offal, oh, really, oh, uh, yes. officially, is sort of like uh, skin, is, skin is part of the offal family. Okay. Oh. So. And is it, this a kind of generational thing? I remember reading George Orwell and he's talking about, you know, being in a small town in Britain where there is a tripe shop, yes. you know, and this was just normal, mm. an entire shop where you would just go and buy tripe, whereas you couldn't imagine that happening no, today. No, I would love it because, you know, tripe, is, tripe when it's done well is fantastic. Ooh. What's tripe um, again? Tripe is the stomach lining of a That's cow. Right. So, and there's sort of three different, it's like mostly the tripe that we would eat and the, the ones the Italians do so well is the, um, is the four-chambered um, stomach of a cud eat, like of a cud-chewing Animal, so oh. it's got that honeycomb texture, and when it's cooked slowly and low, it's sort of like it's almost it's got like a pasta sort of texture, and it picks up flavors of other things really, really beautifully. Oh, so, nice. um, so yeah, it's interesting with the like in Anglo culture, offal has become sort of degraded in a way, other than you know people that are that are sort of. Uh, going to restaurants and, and being interested in food because there's this whole nose-to-tail trend that's happened. Um, but it actually has fallen out of favour because it has always been considered in Anglo culture as, a, you know, a poor food. So it's right. sort of like, you know, that's the one that, you know, you, you, you would eat if you didn't have anything else to eat. And as we've become much more, you know, wealthier, uh, the, uh, the muscle meat is the one that has been uh, the one that has become... So it's sort of like the nice cuts of meat... Um, you know, beef or whatever state, you know. A fancy wagyu. Fancy, yeah, yeah, all of those sort of things where it's sort of that stuff that doesn't look like organs as well. Whereas in, I think, like the two um, of the major food cultures in the world, which is Italian and Chinese, um, offal is revered. You know, it's sort of like yeah. the, the, the Italians call offal quinto quattro, which is the fifth quarter of the animals so it's sort of like all the extra stuff and they sort of really revere the kind of um the dishes that come from that and the idea that like you know when you've got a whole animal you know you've got say with a with a beef cow for example you've got lots and lots of steaks coming off that but you've only got one heart and you've only got one brain and that sort of stuff so it's sort of considered that it's a bit of a delicacy in that way Ah. because it's rare so they're the things that you want to eat. And, you know, also in those, in those cultures, it's sort of like they're, they're, they hate waste. So, yes. you know, that's why, you'll, you know, they'll be in Chinese, particularly they'll, they'll eat, you know, the chicken, there's nothing left. You know, there's absolutely sort of... And that's kind of uh, an argument that they have for eating offal as well, which is sort of like because it is using the entire beast. You know, yeah. you're not wasting anything, whereas when you, if you're just sort of looking at prime cuts, then there's a lot of stuff that's going either into landfill or into pet food. Mm. So who's bringing it back in Australia and for what reason? Is it for environmental reasons or is it just because people are becoming more adventurous about what th- they're eating? I or? think it's a bit of both. I think because there is... I think restaurants in particular are quite conscious of waste because it is. it can be a very wasteful... Um, industry and so that's sort of a thing that that chefs like to think about and I think sort of coming from back from say Fergus Henderson when he did a book called Nose to Tail Eating probably about 10-15 years ago now and that sort of really brought and he was a a chef's chef 
And so it's also sort of a bit of a kind of um, chef thing to do is sort of like, because it is quite hard to cook offal. Well, it's not hard, but it is, it takes a lot, there's a lot of process involved. There's a lot of kind of boiling and peeling and scraping and stuff, which is kind of gross. But uh, <laughs> but it comes out, it comes out it, nicely in the end, sort of like, you know, you have something like a, like a tongue that when you see a beef tongue laid out on a slab, it's revolting. Um, but then when you see after the Japanese have, have got their hands on it and they've, they've kind of, it's been boiled and then they peel off that, the, the textured membrane on the outside, slice it up really thinly and then chuck it on a hibachi and just serve it with a bit of salt and lemon. It's like the best piece of beef that you could ever wow. eat. Um, I actually, my daughter will never forgive me because I fooled her into eating tongue by telling her it was like this is just a delicious piece of beef and when she found out about it, she's, uh, she's still giving me a hard time. My dad did the same it. thing. <laughs> yeah. He said it was silver side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I know we ask this about most food trends, but is there kind of a middle or low range of offal that's popular as well? Is it the kind of thing that trickles down no. into... No. So Not okay. at this stage. Yeah. Like, I think that there's such a pushback because it's interesting because, as I was saying before, it was sort of used to be lower socioeconomic. It was the, 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 the meat that people could afford that couldn't afford the prime cuts of meat. But now it's sort of like the people that are eating it are people that are eating in more expensive restaurants yeah. and it's sort of like and have got the time and the energy to sort of... Um, research how to cook it and stuff. Whereas, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see a McLiver burger or <laughs> anything anytime soon. So, well, is there a kind of gateway offal? Like, if you're someone who's not, you know, accustomed to to, to eating these pieces of meat, that I think you could maybe start with that. Chicken livers are gentle. You know, they're sort of like they taste good even if you cook them up as, as livers, but they it's like in pate for example, oh, so that you can wow. mask it a little bit. So that sort of stuff um, is really good. Calves liver. I think tongue is also, if you don't tell people what it is, just I think ask. any of that, if you don't tell people what it is. Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's kind of part of it is that mm. the problem with offal is that it's really hard to escape when you know what it is, what it is, whereas mm. with um, muscle meat, it's quite easy to sort of just go la, 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 la and pretend that there's no animal involved. You know, mm. it's just this delicious piece of protein. So I think that that's sort of one of the things that works in offal's favour because as we've moved further and further away from the animal in our production of meat, people get more and more squeamish about what they're eating. Mm. So, um, but, you know, I'm telling you if, you, if you really, like one of the things, if you really want to eat something like offal, go, go on a bit of offal adventure, Francois in, uh, that's been in um, South Yarra for 30 years does the best um, brains little lamb's brains um, that are crumbed and fried and served with a green sauce and they're amazing. So cool. just just forget that that's what you're eating. Oh, I'll <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> We've been talking to Michael Harden. Thank you so much for coming in. No worries. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Ghost Hunter is a new documentary. It's screening at the Classic and Lido Cinemas on the 20th of September. To tell us all about it, we're joined by its director, Ben Lawrence. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. How did you first come into contact with Jason King, the subject of this film? I came across uh, Jason in a small article in my local paper. And uh, what it told me was that he was a security guard who had a hobby for ghost hunting. And uh, that began when he'd lost his brother in a car accident and his brother appeared to him as a vision. So that's all I knew. So I thought it was a story about grief and amongst this wonderful world of ghost hunting, it was enough for me to contact him. When did you realise that the real story wasn't about 
spooky ghosts but a different kind of ghost that was haunting Jason. And did you have to make a shift of a change of gears in order to uh, to construct the film that you eventually made? Yeah, there were a lot of shifts along the way. I mean, it took me seven years to make the film and for all of the story elements to really reveal themselves. But um, pretty soon after I met Jason, I knew that this was going to be a different story to what I imagined. He shared with me his hospital records from his childhood, which uh, charted, uh, you know, many quite horrific um, incidents of um, a lot of surgery and emergency blood transfusions and facial injury. So... Um, he he didn't remember a lot of this. So the film and the story and my relationship with Jason pretty quickly became an investigation or at least a mystery around what actually happened. Was that on, on your first meeting that all came out or was it...? Within weeks, within weeks. Wow. I mean, Jason was very forthcoming <clears throat> and that's something that really um, kind of kept me determined to tell the story was because of his enthusiasm to really go there and find out what happened in the past. And it was a really a journey to uncover what happened in this man's childhood. When that kind of change happens, what do you, as a filmmaker, do you go, this is a really good thing or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it or do you feel uncomfortable about kind of treading, beginning to tread into this territory, which is very different to making a film just about ghost hunting? Mm. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I don't believe in ghosts, so I, w- I wasn't necessarily interested in that, but I loved it as a backdrop. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's a kooky world and it, it's fun and eccentric and there's amazing characters and really, you know, kind of uh, there's a lot of, um, I, I mean, I got quite scared quite a lot of the time. But Jason shared with me, like within the first few weeks, his past, he was really open and really happy to talk about it. As a filmmaker, I mean, I'm always looking for three things and one is them, there's that visual element and this, the ghost hunting had that. A great character, Jason was certainly that, is charismatic mm-hmm. and um, certainly that there was a lot going on there that he wasn't revealing, I think, and, and I, I could see. And the other element is an amazing story and that just continued to become more and more rich. Yeah. As a filmmaker, I guess just following on from Sarah's question, you uncover some fairly raw scenes in this film, are there points where you think maybe I shouldn't be filming this or maybe this is too raw? How do you negotiate that when you're dealing with such sort of confronting material? Uh, yeah, look, it is really um, a challenging thing because you have, a, you have a friendship and you have a relationship with, you know, the characters within the film, but, you know, friends don't turn up when there's great loss. And so, I mean, in one instance, one of the characters' house burns down and so, you know, I turn up with a camera. Um, that's hard to navigate in as much that um, um, I, behind the scenes, always wanted to assure them that the, I wanted to tell the full story, but anything that they felt uncomfortable about, they could always tell me that, you know, they that they didn't want on screen. So it was a kind of a, a back and forth ongoing, checking in with each other as to how everyone felt. And that was probably the biggest thing is navigating that emotional territory. And the duty of care was huge. Um, and you know, a lot of the time I was cautioned as to really go slow and that was by people who I sought advice from during the filming. So it was a very slow process and I think that's why the film in a lot of ways took seven years. It's just a lot of the times um, it was very difficult to navigate where to go next. Mm. There are scenes in the movie that show you discovering a darker side of Jason himself. By that stage you seem to have become quite close to him. Was that hard to be confronted with that? other side yeah it was i mean in some respects i wasn't surprised surprised i mean people who suffer childhood trauma like jason did there's a lot of um symptoms of uh, damaging and uh behavior that uh they inflict upon themselves and others so 
what was most challenging is how to confront it, how to deal with it in the film, how to deal with it as someone who was a friend of his, someone who he may listen to. And I think that's probably one of the most key elements in the film is that men talking about an issue um, where, where um, you so often don't see and don't hear. And it, and it feels messy, it was messy, and I didn't know what to do. And I think that uh, it was a really important thing that we air those issues and we talk about those things. And while I don't want to give too much away about the film, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot in there that was challenging for me and I think for Jason, but ultimately it's, it's caused a lot of good really discussions around uh, childhood trauma. Yes, because in many ways in this film, and that's one of the things that makes it such a striking um, piece of filmmaking, you cross over from being a spectator to being a participant and you you, be, you start playing a role in helping him get, get his life back together. Again, was that a deliberate decision or was there a moment where you realised actually you're not just going to be a fly on the wall, you're actually going to be some ways a, a character in this film? No, I really didn't want to do it at all. I hated the idea of going and putting myself mm. into the story. I really wanted it to be an observational documentary and it became apparent to me, actually during the edit, I mean, we were we were halfway through the edit and it became clear that as a practical narrative um, device or just to make the story clear, there was so much going on behind the scenes. People were contacting me, telling me about Jason and other aspects of the story that without my stepping in, there was a lack of context and also probably a lack of empathy in a way because I felt so much for him and the other characters and respected um, and honoured what they were disclosing. So for me not to step in, it just would have been... Um, it, was, it was probably... Would have, would have been probably a colder choice, I think. But um, it wasn't easy, but I think it helped the story in the end. You did say off air that Jason has been coming to some of the screenings. How does he feel about the film and his depiction in it? And... Is he uncomfortable when he's at those screenings when there's a whole lot of people there who can kind of sit and judge him and then he has to face them as well? Yeah, look, it's, I think it's really challenging for him. Ultimately, the, the film's been a, um, a positive experience for him and he does come along to as many of the screenings as he can. And that was always an aim for me, that it was going to be a positive experience and ultimately that anyone who got involved in the film was going to be a, a proud of um, the story and their portrayal. So um, I'd have to say that... Um, what what I think it gives him some comfort is that the film is getting out there and, and by him sharing his story, there's a, there's a certain bravery in that and others are feeling more inclined to come forward and share some of their challenging past. I can't imagine if someone had approached me and said, I want to film you for seven years, that I would go along with it as enthusiastically as Jason. And he's got a really dark past and some um, very tragic things that we unearthed. So just on that front, um, I think he needs to be commended. But... Um, Certainly it's not easy to watch a lot of the moment. He certainly seems um, to be a bit of a, a people pleaser. So I'd imagine that um, being at a, a cinema and seeing, I think it's a brilliant film and it, obviously to see other people enjoying that film would be quite amazing for him, essentially. Would that be the case? Yeah, definitely. And I think what was otherwise a very shameful and dark period of his life and there was so much silence around to have something that kind of celebrated him as a man and having survived um, through what he did, um, I think that it's a positive aspect aspect to what mm. otherwise is a is a very dark period of his life that he that he couldn't find any use for, and that goes for a number of other characters. I think it was just you know something that they were able to frame um, horrible experiences in a good way by sharing it. 
Mm. When you signed up for this, did you ever imagine this would be a seven-year commitment? And how do you keep yourself going on a project like that for such a long period of time when you don't necessarily know what you're going to uncover or whether you're going to bring the story to a close? Yeah, look, I... um I make TV commercials and I work in in, in TV in uh, in uh, documentaries as well. So I was able to do other projects along the way, and they were really able to keep me going financially. But this was such a personal journey, and and I thought it was a really important story to tell, one that hadn't been told. Um, I love the world in which it was set, and I love the characters, and and more importantly than anything, I think that so often in society we turn away from people. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Too damaged. And really what I wanted to tell is try and get to the bottom of, in some instances, why people are the way they are and somehow just explain what it means to be human and, and uh, how difficult it is sometimes. You also, sorry, did the um, documentary on ABC, Man Up. Mm. Uh, how much of an influence did either of these projects have on each other, if at all? Um, well, look, it probably Man Up prepared me for the for the journey I went on with Ghost Hunter mm. in that, you know, Man Up dealt with uh, male suicide and, and, and I guess toxic masculinity in the way um, as adults, um, you know, men can often, uh, their emotions can get the better of them and, and damaging behaviour can occur. So and not to make light of it, it helped me kind of work my way through what was going on for Jason and others within the film. And just quickly, in this film, you do accompany Jason on his ghost hunting expeditions. Did you ever see a ghost? Never saw a ghost, but I was incredibly scared quite often. Ooh. (laughs) Got to be open to them, then. Got to be open. I'm open. (laughs) The documentary is called Ghost Hunter. You can catch it at the Classic and Lido Cinemas from the 20th September. We've been talking to its director, Ben Lawrence. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It's Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, last night I went, uh, went out, it was lovely, had a lovely night. Yeah. Uh, went and saw uh, a Melbourne Fringe show called um, uh, Strong Female Protagonist. Loved it, mm-hmm. really, really great show. Um, but I went with, um, with Kath and also um, my old mate Celia oh. um, and we had a lovely dinner beforehand. And, Where'd you go? Uh, to Belleville. That's where the show, you know, it was the same place where we saw Double Denim. Oh, yeah. Okay, the Fringe Show. You said you actually ate there. I didn't even know I could eat food there. I know. That's the first time I've eaten there. Oh. I didn't realise they had food there either, but it was so good. Sweet. It was yum. Uh, so, yeah, it was good. You know, had a nice, uh, nice, really nice dinner mm. before going in. And then, um, but during the dinner, uh, or when we got there, realised that um, the phone that I had been using, like one of Kath's old phones, no good, died again. Mm. Hang on. The substitute one died? Yeah, or? yeah. Substitute one, not oh. working. I'm like, oh, well. So you had two not working phones? Yeah. Well, actually, my one's come back to life. So oh, has just, it? Yeah, yeah. Mine, for some... I don't know, maybe you just needed a a, rest. Yeah, a 24-hour rest. (laughs) Long weekend. At at the worst possible time, wanted to have a rest. I haven't even talked about how much of a drainer it was not having that phone available to me. So when I arrived in... um, Before the phone switched off, 
when I was flying to to Hobart, I sent a message to the producers um, to the of the shows in Hobart who was you know organising the whole thing. I sent him a message saying, "Hey, heads up, my flight's been cancelled. I'm on a later flight. I arrive at this time. Here's my flight number, so you can you know track it if you want." Uh, so I knew that the message had gotten out, so I knew that was fine. And then uh, and then an hour later, phone died, and I'm like, "Well, at least I don't have to." be too worried about that and then I arrived in Hobart and there was nobody there and then it was uh, and then I kind of you know waited around and looked around for a bit and was like no they're not they're they're not not here so were you thinking maybe the message didn't get out no I knew the message had got out because I knew that because he he'd responded and said oh that's no good we'll see you later kind of thing and so I was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I find out what to do? Because this would have made me panic so much, mate. I and I know that you're not in another country, but this this yes. whole situation would give me a lot of anxiety. So I went. Well, I just I found a payphone, and oh, I wow. went. You know, oh, they still existed. Yeah, I know. Like when you're desperate for them, like you find them. Yeah. <laughs> like you, it's they appear. Re- yeah, yeah. And then you have to remember the number too. Exactly. Oh, yeah. How much does the payphone even cost? You know, it must be 40 cents for a local call. I wouldn't know how much to put in. Mate, it's 50 cents for a standard call. Yeah. And all I had was a dollar coin. Yeah. Right? right. I had one, one dollar coin. These are very old school problems, aren't they? Yeah. I'll tell you what, right? And then, so do you know anyone's number off by heart? No. No. I barely know Andrew's. I have to kind of think about it a lot. When I try to remember it. Yeah, see, Mark, I I almost know cats, yeah. but almost is not Doesn't good enough. It. No, Doesn't, it's <laughs> like, you really know it. You need all those numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, I'm one number off. Um, but the num the one number that I did know off by heart was Mum. Ah, because oh. Mum's m- mobile number it was based on the number that we grew up with. Right. I so still it just, remember Alf. Yeah. So exactly the only right. Number. So it's a time of crisis. You call Mum. Call mum. So I put a dollar in. I call mum. Thank goodness she answers. And she goes, is everything all right? I'm like, I'm stuck in Hobart. Do you have Kath's number? And she goes, no, I don't think I do. And I'm like, okay. So then I had to go, okay, can you please get in contact with Therese, who just happened to be in Hobart as well. I thought there's a double chance that she might be able to come and get me. Uh, but I said, get on to Therese. Tell Therese to get on to to Kath and then – and mind you, I'm just chatting away with mum and then all of a sudden the phone goes beep, 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 beep. Oh, no. <gasps> and then I turn around and it's like 20 seconds left. I'm like, I've got to get – I said, mum, you've got to tell Therese to get on to Kath to get on to, to Justin and tell tell him – Justin was another comic and I said, tell him that I'm at the Hobart airport. Okay, bye. And beep. Oh, my God. And, and then, then it's just like – you don't know whether they've got it. Like, I don't know. Mission Impossible. I don't dun, know what dun, they've dun, done. Dun, dun. Oh. <coughs> Sorry. And then – so then I'm like walking around just thinking, oh, okay, well, I guess hopefully that works and what do I do? And I'll just go and wait. And, and then I saw a lady at, at an information stand and I said, I went up to her and I was like, hi, do you have, uh, do you know if there's anywhere that you have access to the internet here? And she goes, oh, we've got Wi-Fi. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but I don't um, have uh, uh, my phone. Yeah, my phone died. Uh, and she went, oh, what kind of phone do you have? We've got a charger. I'm like, I'm gonna, I can't tell you how many times I had to tell people that my phone, it wasn't the battery, it was the phone yeah. that was dead. I, judges are no good. Like every phone. It's not the it's not the bad. Anyway, so she's like, oh yeah, that's really and and she goes, it's anyone coming? I'm like, I don't know, I don't know where I'm staying, I don't know uh, what time, you know, I don't know anything, and I've got no way of 
getting, I just need to get on to Has the- this, and not to be the drainer here, maybe made you think about being more organised when you <laughs> yeah. arrive somewhere? Like, is it in advance? No, but do you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, having but- that information somewhere else. No, but yeah, I had all the information. Where would you keep all that information? I'd, maybe I'd just probably, maybe I'd also maybe just have a look at it and try and remember. Remember it? Yeah, but Sometimes if you if... knew that it was all on your phone, like if you knew... Oh, if yeah. If I was travelling... All the information that I had uh, on my phone. Yeah. If I was travelling internationally, I'd, I think I'd print it out just because... Would you? Yeah, yeah I Just because I have had stuff like this happen. Yeah. Like, not, not the phone dying, but, you oh, know, yeah, your battery's running overseas. out. But not Tassie. Yeah. Not Tassie, yeah. I reckon I, reckon I would have looked at it, though, and maybe remembered the hotel I was staying at. Yeah, but... Yeah, Sure. Sure. No, it isn't in the judgment. I was just, I was just thinking. But also, it was just like I knew that I had gotten the information yeah. out, and so then I, I understand. And then it was like, okay, there's nothing. I can't get in contact with anybody else. I, like, and this lady lent me her phone, and I called mum again. Um, and then she was like, "Yep, yeah, got the message out." I'm like, D- "Have you?" Heard, okay, well, I guess there's nothing else I can do. Like, I just did, I didn't. I wanted it to come back around. Yeah, they were going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you don't know. Because you might. You don't know whether you should get a taxi or go yeah, somewhere yeah. or maybe they're going to come or maybe the manager, maybe the gig's been sending urgent messages saying the gig's been cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Go back to Melbourne. Yeah, well, they wouldn't have. But, yeah, and then I went, oh, I can't do it. Like, I just wanted to be in more control. So yeah. I got got a bunch of dollar coins and went back to the payphone. Ah. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll get, like, Teresa's number and then I can get in contact with her to see if she got the message out. And, and stuff and then and then I call <laughs> mum again and mum's like oh hang on I don't know how to how do I look up her number while I'm on the phone it's oh. beep 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 and then cancels and I'm like oh this is the worst and then and then I ended up just going well there's nothing you can do just go and have a beer and then I so I bought a beer and I just <laughs> good stood there good, good idea yeah and drank this beer and, and then, then didn't care anymore. Well, no, I, I still can't. <laughs> but then it was getting quite... So I'd been at the airport for like an hour at this oh. stage and I'm like... And were you worried the gig was about to start? Like, Well, it's getting... No, it wasn't about to start. Like, and here's the... I knew where the where the gig was and I went, I'm just going to get in a cab and go to the Theatre Royal. Right. I'll just do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then I was like, I should have just done that from the first place. I should have done that. Maybe that would have been a good idea. <laughs> but also it was that thing of like... I don't know if they're just about yeah. to. Yeah, you know, Imagine totally. you rung these people in a panic and they'd come all the way to the airport yeah. and you just left. Exactly. How pissed off they'd be. Yeah. So then I get in a cab and then that's exactly what I'm thinking. I end up going, I'll just get in a cab and I'll go. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, they're going to get there and they're going to be so angry at me. And then I started crying because I'm thinking Aww. about how much I'm going to get into trouble for something that I'm just imagining in my head. Oh, it hurts my heart. And then I get to, I get to the Theatre Royal and they're like, oh, we don't have any... Like, no one else is there. And they're like, do you have a contact? And they're like, oh, actually, we've just got a landline number in Sydney. And I'm like, I just, oh. I'm like, do you know where this? And they go, oh, most of the stay down at this place. And I'm like, oh, definitely no, we're not staying there. It was somewhere else. And then it was like, oh, I just don't. And then finally got on to, he found, I got the number of the tech, of the mobile number of the producer. And he, you know, calls him. And I get on the phone. I'm like, hi. And he's like, I'm just at the airport. Oh, <laughs> no. 
anyway, but he was like, I'm so sorry. It was so lovely. He was just like, I'm so sorry you had to go through all of that. Like, uh, you wouldn't have got all my texts saying just get a cab to the Aww. hotel. This is the worst. I'm so sorry. I'll come back and pick you up and take you to the what hotel. What a nice person. It was so great. And then doubly nice because then when I was leaving, he loaded up his iPod Nano for me with some podcasts and, and gave it to me so I could listen to some Save the Day when I was stuck at the airport for four hours the next day. <laughs> yes. But now you've got a substitute phone and that's also not working. Oh, yeah. So just – but it, by TBC. that stage – TBC. <laughs> no, no, by that stage it was just like, oh, who cares now? Who cares? I don't need a phone. I do. I love it. <laughs> this has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear oh. more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.